MacCast, Sunday, December 26th, 2021. Hey, Mac Geeks, it's time for your MacCast, the show for Mac Geeks by Mac Geeks. I'm Adam, and this is the show where we discuss all things Macintosh. How you doing? Welcome back to the MacCast. Welcome back. Hope you had a wonderful, happy holiday, especially if you celebrate that. Um, whatever you might be celebrating, I hope it was wonderful. I hope you got to spend some time with friends and family. I know I certainly did, and it was very, very nice. Um, if you don't, hopefully you're just having a great week, a uh, great month. Things are just going well for you. And I'm certainly happy to be back here with you for another episode of Apple and Mac news, hints, tips, tricks, all the goings ons in our community. I think I, I think I coined that phrase now goings ons. I don't, that's, that's not a real thing, but we're going to say it anyway, I guess. I don't know. It's a weird start to the show. I'm feeling a little bit, uh, weird today, I guess. Okay. Well, that's how it's going to go. Regardless, we have a ton of uh, Mac news to get into, uh, quite a few things to dig in on, including some potential new processor news. We're going to take a look at what might be next. Uh, there's speculation going back and forth. We're going to look at iPhone cameras. We've got more on kind of the camera updates we're expecting for the iPhone this year. Some interesting numbers for HomePod that were somewhat surprising. Uh, New City gets some updated maps, and we'll talk a little bit more about 27-inch iMac that may or may not be coming and what the display on that might look like. And then uh, over in the Netherlands, some interesting things happen with regard to apps and in-app payments. And that'll sort of round out the news for this episode. And then we're going to get into some of the things we've been talking about on previous episodes of the MacCast, we have some follow-up on a home-sharing bug that we talked about. Actually, a listener sent in some great information, so we'll dig in on that. We'll talk a little bit more about potential Apple displays. I had some feedback from the community there. Uh, I have a question about notes and maybe a little tip or workaround, and maybe someone in the community can even help us out with uh, with this one. And then we'll round things out with a thing of the moment. I have uh, something that actually isn't technically a thing of the moment because I've been using it for a long, long time, but I realized I've never talked about it here on the MacCast. So I want to share that with you. And so that will round out this episode of the MacCast. So it should be another good one. But before we get into all of it, I do want to take a quick moment and thank a show sponsor, and that is Smile. You know, Text Expander is amazing. I've talked about it many, many times on the show. It's an application that I have on all my Macs and iOS devices, and I literally couldn't imagine running my world without it, really. It saves me time each and every day, lets me set up simple, quick shortcuts that expand into larger blocks of text, and it can do the same thing for you or your team. You can even supercharge your team with the power of Text Expander, you, your team can do more with the same resources, less repetition, fewer errors, and greater consistency to maximize your team's productivity. Use Text Expander's powerful shortcuts and abbreviations to streamline and speed up everything you type. And that's really what it does for me. I have snippets for things I need to answer on the MacCast emails, email signatures, spelling corrections, accented characters all sorts of things. It really does help out with that. 
and you too can create powerful snippets to save you time. And all you have to type is a short abbreviation. Text Expander does all the rest, typing everything out for you. And for Teams, what's really nice is it can add consistency to your communication, also help you communicate efficient, efficiently and stay on brand and on message using consistent language. You can share your snippets uh, with messaging, signatures, and descriptions so that everyone on your team that works on projects with you have the same ones. And best of all, it's totally cross-platform. Text Expander is available on Mac, Windows, Chrome, iPhone, iPad. It's everywhere you need it to be. And best of all, show listeners, you get 20% off your first year. Just visit textexpander.com slash podcast to learn more about Text Expander. That's textexpander.com slash podcast. And a big thank you to Smile for their support of the show. There's new speculation and possibly some new details this week about Apple's next generation of Apple Silicon. Uh, many of us think it's going to be called the M2, and there's some possible details coming out from the Chinese-language website Commercial Times. They seem to think that Apple's M2 chips will be coming in the second half of 2022, along with new M2 versions of the Pro and Max processors coming in the first half of 2023. Now, they say the chips will use TSMC's newer 4 nanometer manufacturing process, which should yield performance gains over the current 5 nanometer designs. What's not clear about the report is how these new chips fit into Apple's lineup in terms of timing. And if you want to think that the M2 Pro and M2 Max versions would be part of the Mac Pro transition to Apple Silicon, then these dates might actually fall outside of Apple's own two-year deadline. And we've been hearing that there should be some updates coming for the Mac Pro and maybe a new iMac fairly soon, probably in the first half of 2023. So timelines aren't lining up exactly. Commercial Times has sort of had mixed results on Apple rumors. So I'm taking some of this with a grain of salt. I'm going to give you some of my thoughts too here in a moment on where and how these things could fall into the cycle. But Apple has been sort of all over the place in recent years with when and how they launch new Macs, especially the M1s. That's kind of thrown things off. Essentially, we had fall announcements for Apple Silicon in both cases with the MacBook Air, 13-inch MacBook Pro, and Mac Minis coming in 2020. And then that was followed up, as you likely know, this year with the 14-inch and 16-inch updates for the MacBook Pros in 2021. Now, one exception to that was the release of the 24-inch iMac, which happened earlier this year, back in the spring of 2021. So to me, in terms of timeline, what would make the most sense is for Apple to sort of get back into a regular cycle, or I'd at least like them like to see them do that. Now, depending upon how supply chain and all these other factors go on, that may not happen. But to me, I can think of kind of an ideal scenario with how things would line up. Uh, and that would be that we would get consumer updates in the spring, uh, which we did kind of in the past. So your things like your iMac, your MacBook Air, maybe a MacBook, MacBook Air, MacBook could be combined into a single, into a single unit. And so we'd have that update then. And so like what that would like look like this year is that would be 
the M2 update, right? Because we have the M1 and then the M1 Pro and one Max, and the Pro processors are expected to be doubled and quadrupled for the new Mac Pro. And then for the Pro systems, those would come out right around Worldwide Developer Conference in June. So early summer, maybe late spring. So Mac Pro and then maybe iMac Pro. You know, the 27-inch iMac is rumored to be coming again probably this quarter, or in the first quarter, rather, of 2023, which we're fast approaching, I guess. And uh, so we could be off a little bit this year, but if they could get into that cycle where the pro systems come out around June, and that was, again, something that they have kind of done in the past. It's never been super consistent, but if you go back and look at the timings, they have been known to do that. And that feels like a natural progression or a natural time to launch the pro systems because uh, folks at Worldwide Developer Conference, a lot of those people are the ones who are buying those systems. And then we keep the fall like we always have or have in the past for the pro laptop updates. So your MacBook Pros, which is like what happened this year. So if we wait another year cycle, then we could have the M2 Pro and M2 Max coming out in those machines. And then the you know beefy pro versions would happen the next year in June, even though we'd have an M3 update in the spring. So it feels a little bit weird, but it kind of makes sense because... Even though the, you know, the M2 designation would sort of fall behind a little bit when we get to the pros, it really doesn't because you're talking about, you know, a Pro Max or a Pro and a Max processor with, you know, double the cores of the Pro Max, double or quadruple the cores of the Pro and Max systems, if that makes sense. So that's kind of how I see that lining up and, and would like to see those things falling Branding gets a little bit weird again because the pro systems are getting kind of an older naming. So maybe Apple would have to address that in some way. But, you know, I don't it feels like they're going to launch the pro processors with the notebooks first and then bring them to the desktops. So that's just how I'm thinking about it. Uh, I'd love to know what you think about that idea. But this year, it looks like that might not happen. I think we're going to get a Mac Pro and an iMac Pro sometime in the first half of the year, even though this report seems to indicate it would be a little bit different. So I'm taking this one with a grain of salt. Those are just my opinions. I'd love you for you to share yours. Just shoot me an email, send me an audio comment, maccast at gmail.com. Now, something else interesting with the potential Mac Pro update that, you know, again, I'm expecting to happen in the first half of 2023 is that there are rumors this week also, or reports this week, that Apple is still planning on delivering at least one, one more version of the Mac Pro with an Intel processor, with Intel processors in them. Uh, according to the report, the designs would include both a completely redesigned Mac Pro with Apple Silicon, but also one that is an update of the existing design just with new Intel Xeon scalable processors. And you might think, like I did at first, well, that's weird. Why would Apple be doing that? Or why is that even in consideration? Why wouldn't we just transition straight to Apple Silicon? It's going to be amazing performance, amazing uh, all the way around based on you know the results of the M1 Pro and M1 Max chips. Well, the reason is, is that uh, it gives pros some time and some options to be able to upgrade a system which hasn't been updated in a while and still stay away from the ARM 
processor and the software potential transition that they would have to go through because there are still a number of pro apps that aren't converted over to Apple Silicon yet. And while early performance numbers kind of show that they run pretty good under Rosetta 2, they're not all going to be supported. A lot of people are going to want the performance of the native support, and that could take a little bit longer to happen. So if you just need a machine to get you through another year, but you want updated processors, Intel is what they're going to have to go with. So it's an it, there's a very high likelihood that if we do get a Mac Pro announcement to Apple Silicon, that we also see an update to the existing version with some Intel processors. So I, I would not be shocked to see that happening. And that's what we're kind of hearing in the rumor mill at this point. And so another thing about my theory is that it possibly lines up nicely with some new reports from Digitimes that TSMC plans to have commercial production of three nanometer chips ready by the fourth quarter of 2022, with shipments of the processors going out in 2023. So that would supposedly be new M3 versions of the Mac chips, which falls up in nicely with you know new consumer models coming out with M3s in 2023. And also that same process from TSMC would be used for the iPhone 15 models with A17 chips. So we are expecting that cycle to sort of happen. And again, it kind of lines up nicely with this idea that we would get new consumer level processors in the spring and then new pro level processors in the fall each year. So that's my theory. But again, I'd love to hear yours as well. We have a little bit more this week on rumors about the next iPhone camera upgrades coming in 2022. This time, according to Mac Rumors, they say Ming-Chi Kuo has weighed in on the next iPhone cameras in a recent research note. And he basically reiterated what we heard last week, that this year's iPhones, or at least the Pro models, could have a 48 megapixel wide angle lens and support for recording up to 8K video. Now, he claims that the 8K video would also be suitable for viewing on Apple's rumored AR VR headset, which you may remember is believed to have a pair of Sony 8K displays in them. Now, reportedly, the cameras would use a technique called pixel binning to support both 48 megapixel and 12 megapixel options. And the reason is, is that just cramming more megapixels into a sensor doesn't necessarily make it better for all conditions, especially like lower lighting levels. So this could actually adapt and use a 48 megapixel when it's in ideal conditions, but then go down to say like 12 megapixel for low light situations, maintaining quality. So, you know, it's not a one for one sort of thing. Uh, and that's just worth noting. You know, they are thinking about that. So that's a good thing. Looking forward, Quo also has reiterated a rumor we've heard before that Apple will eventually introduce a periscope lens. This is a lens technique where basically they put additional lenses inside the body of the phone and it's used to provide better optical zoom without compromising the compact design, right? You can only fit so much in the you know width of the device but if you go at another angle you can do a lot more so 
you'd have this periscope lens inside there. Some other phone makers actually have this. That's how they get things like a 10x optical zoom on a very thin phone. And Quo is expecting Apple to add this feature in 2023. So that will not happen with this year's model, the iPhone 14, but could be coming in the iPhone 15 models. And then just something on the iPhone software front, there are reports this week that Apple is planning on dropping support for the iPhone 6S, iPhone 6S Plus, and the original iPhone SE in the release of iOS 16, which should happen next year next year i guess we're still i still keep wanting to think that we're already into 2022 but it is still just the end of december we're a few days away so try to stay on top of that but yeah that in 2022 apple could drop support for those phones i actually find that pretty amazing considering the fact that the iphone se and the iphone 6s models will be six and seven years old respectively in 2022 so to support a device with software for six plus years that's not too shabby you're not going to see that over on the android side i can guarantee you that so that's actually a really good thing and then uh, finally on the iphone display front we have reports this week from the elect who is claiming that the pro versions of the iphone 14 will feature ltpo oled panels with a punch hole design Uh, supposedly being supplied by Samsung and LG. That would essentially mean that this year could be the year that Apple ditches the distinctive notch, although my opinion is they might just stick with it because I think people have gotten over it, and it definitely is a distinctive design. When you look at a device in someone's hand, especially when you just see an all-screen front, it's hard to tell one from the other without you know, looking a little bit more closely, but you see that notch and you know instantly that that is an iPhone. It's very distinctive. And I know that other phones have notches, but a lot of them have started to ditch that for the punch hole design. And there's a lot of debate on which people think is better because the notch just sort of blends into the menu bar in a lot of situations. And frankly, I don't even notice it, but they're thinking Apple could go to this punch hole design One challenge with that, of course, is Face ID and the True Depth camera system. So even though you have the camera hole there, you have all the other sensors you need for True Depth. So theory there is that Apple would move that stuff to under display technology. The question is, can they pull it off with the same level of accuracy? Because it does prove to uh, bring some additional challenges to the tech. So we'll have to see if that's a direction that Apple moves in. I'd be curious to know what's your vote. Do you care about the notch anymore? Do you want it gone? What if it was just slimmer? Is punch hole better? Again, my opinion is the notch has never bothered me. We have notches on our Macs now, as a matter of fact. So it's becoming even more of an Apple sort of thing in terms of branding. Is is that worth it? Is it worth keeping the notch even just for that? Or, you know, do we want more screen real estate, even if we've got a little pinhole punched through the through the display? I think ultimately... I'd like to see Apple just move to under-display technology for all of it. And I know that's something they've been working on for years now. I can almost, I'd have to go back and check my notes, but I can almost think that we talked about that more than patents that Apple had related to that technology more than maybe 10 years ago. They were going to even have a way for like the entire display to be a camera. Um, they were looking at that that kind of technology way, way back. So there could be other ways to go. We're maybe just not there yet. And Apple tends to wait to get the technology they want rather than just rushing into the cur- current sort of trends. But 
Apple's changed a little bit lately and they've made some different decisions. So it'll be interesting to see what they ultimately do. I have to say things seemed pretty grim for the HomePod in the early days and especially when Apple's smart speaker was discontinued or at least the full-size version of the HomePod was discontinued it didn't look too good other than the fact that they did bring in a lower priced version now Apple's high-end pricey $300 plus speaker really had failed to make En-ROADS into a very crowded as you know speaker market dominated by Amazon and their sub $50 Echo but we know that that never had the quality that Apple's speaker did. It just didn't seem to resonate with consumers. Also, at the time, we had a lot of the debate about Siri maybe not being as good as Alexa. I guess that debate still goes on probably today. But I have to say, I think Siri's gotten a lot, lot better at a lot of things. Plus, Apple introduced the sub $1 HomePod Mini. And while it's not dominating by any sense of the word, it turns out that that seemed to have helped Apple's prospects quite a bit because this week we have new data from Strategy Analytics that says that Apple's HomePod Mini managed to almost double the company's market share in the smart speaker market. They think Apple that, that Apple shipped as many as 4 million HomePods in the third quarter of 2021. And I have to imagine they shipped a lot more in the fourth quarter uh, with the holidays and those new colors that are out there. But you know, given that they maybe shipped 4 million HomePods in the third quarter of 2021, that would actually give Apple a 10.2 share of the global combined smart speaker and smart screen market. And smart screen, we're talking about things like the Amazon Echo. So a, you know, smart speaker with a screen attached, attached to it, basically. So Apple is able to get that with just a smart speaker. They don't even have a smart screen in the game, at least not yet. And uh, if that is accurate, that is up from the 5.9% estimated share of the market that they had at the same time last year. So I personally have loved HomePod since the very beginning. I have a full-size one. I have the mini. I still like my full-size one better. I, I think it's better technology. It's got way more speakers. It sounds way better. It's louder, uh, but obviously much more pricey, right? I can get you know three HomePod Minis for the price of that one speaker. So uh, I love my HomePod Mini too. Don't get me wrong. I have it in my office. I listen to it every single day. Use Siri all the time on it. And again, super convenient. And especially if you're in the Apple ecosystem, I think it is the best way to go. I, I had an Echo and uh, never really stuck with me, but that was just my personal preference. So HomePod, HomePod you know, making En-ROADS, gaining some share in the smart speaker space. We'll have to wait and see what Apple does next with HomePod. Maybe, you know, bullied by the success of the HomePod mini, maybe they bring back a full-size HomePod or at least expand the line out into a fuller range. I've never thought that the smart screen smart speaker was ever a thing that I would be interested in, but sounds like it's gaining some popularity. So who knows, maybe Apple will even move into that market. I know we've had a lot of rumors regarding that, but only time will tell. Good news for you folks in Philly this week. Apple expanded its 3D landmarks and maps to Philadelphia. That makes Philly the seventh city to get the feature following London, Los Angeles, New York, San Diego, San Francisco, and 
Washington, D.C. Uh, it's really cool. If you have that in your area, you can zoom in and get really cool information and 3D models of various landmarks throughout your city. And Apple is planning to continue to roll that out. It's an additional part of, I think, iOS 15 uh, and continues on their enhancements that they've been doing across the board to Apple Maps. So again, I think Apple Maps keeps getting better and better. Uh, Getting things like look around in more areas, I think, is really, really important. And, you know, if you remember back, you know, a few years ago, people were really hating on Apple Maps. They're still work to be done. Obviously, we're not all the way there yet, but I think they've gained significant ground in the space. And I think that gap has really, really narrowed. And, uh, you know, I, for one, am certainly appreciative of the efforts of the Apple Maps team. And uh, they don't show any signs of slowing down. So expect more and even better features coming in 2022. I think we've been talking quite a bit on the last few episodes of the MacCast about the expected 27-inch iMac update. And to date, most of the rumors we've been hearing have mentioned that they that they expect the display on the new iMac to be a liquid retina display. Uh, basically, that it would have 120 hertz refresh rate and it would use mini-LED backlighting. Well, now there seems to be a little bit of debate debate, or at least conflict from one source that says uh, it may not have mini-LED backlighting. DigiTimes says that component suppliers are already sending out shipments of component parts for the rumored upcoming 27-inch iMac, but their initial report mentioned that the iMac would have a mini LED display. And then later they came back and corrected it to just say it would have a quote unquote standard LCD display. Now, as we covered last week, analyst Ross Young thinks that the iMac will use mini LED backlighting. And he reconfirmed that belief this week after this DigiTimes report surfaced. Now, the DigiTimes report also mentioned that Apple plans to offer the 27-inch iMac in various colors, which seems to allude to it having colors matching maybe the 24-inch iMac. They didn't talk about what the colors would be. Apple could also go a different route and go with a different color palette. Maybe they go bright all the way across the board. Honestly, uh, as we've discussed here, a lot of the rumors, especially if it's going to have a you know ProMotion Liquid XDR display, would indicate that it would be more targeted at a pro-level user. So many people are thinking the 27-inch iMac could be the update to the iMac Pro, with the 24-inch model being the consumer version. And so if they went with a pro model, I would think it would have more pro colors, and that tends to be silver and space gray, maybe a gold or a bronze or something like that. And there were previous rumors that said that the... 27-inch iMac would have black bezels, not white bezels. And again, that would be something I think very important for pro users. They're not going to want a display with white bezels on them that could really, you know, harm the demand, I would think. So I started thinking about this and, and I didn't read about this in any of the rumors, but I say, why couldn't it be both? that maybe these rumors are getting a little bit mixed up. And really what Apple is planning to do is bring a 27-inch iMac update 
along with the 27-inch iMac Pro update. And who knows if they would wait on the Pro update and bring that out alongside the Mac Pro and then maybe this event that we're expecting, um, you know, in April, May timeframe, March, April, May sometime there would be just an update to the 24-inch iMac adding in a 27-inch iMac, uh, larger display, a traditional LCD, M1 processors maybe ramped up a little bit or cranked up a little bit. Um, and then we could still get a pro version that came in silver and space gray with the mini LED ProMotion liquid retina display and M1 Pro M1 Max chips in it, right? So best of both worlds, we kind of get it all. And uh, again, none of the rumors have pointed in that direction. I think what most people are thinking is that Digitimes is just off on this one and that what we are going to get is a 27-inch iMac, basically an iMac Pro with the ProMotion display. So we'll have to wait and see what ultimately happens. Probably not very long because it's sounding like it'll happen in the first half of 2022. And then finally in the news for this week, the Dutch say that Apple must offer alternative in-app payment methods, at least for dating apps, which feels oddly specific, but okay, we'll go with it. The Authority for Consumer Markets, the ACM, ruled that Apple must allow dating apps to offer alternatives to Apple's own in-app payment system or face heavy fines. The ruling says that Apple has two months to comply and that if they don't, they could face fines of 5 million euros per week up to a maximum of 50 million euros. So this is kind of a serious thing. This just happened, so we'll have to wait to see how Apple responds. But in the ruling, the Dutch organization says, quote, some app providers are dependent on Apple's app store and Apple's and Apple takes advantage of that dependency. Apple has special responsibilities because of its dominant position. That's why Apple needs to take seriously the interests of app providers too and set reasonable conditions. The ACM has actually been looking into Apple's App Store practices since 2019. Originally, I think they had intended to have this ruling be a little bit broader, but ultimately it looks like they scaled back their investigation to just focus on dating apps. I don't know if that's because that's where the original complaints came from, but ultimately that's what they landed on this single ruling. I have to imagine that it would be much easier for Apple to comply with this uh, if they just changed the policies and opened up across the board. Now, I don't know, and it's not clear if this falls in line with some of the other uh, changes they're going to have to make with regards to the whole Epic lawsuit where they have to allow links to payment methods outside the app or if the Dutch ruling specifically says that they have to provide in-app alternative options, which could be a point of clarification. Like I said, this report just came out, so we'll be digging into this a little bit more and following up on future episodes. And again, We'll probably be talking next episode about Apple's response to this. We'll have to wait and see. But with that, that is going to do it for the news for this week. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Check them out at betterhelp.com slash maccast. The best way to think about therapy is through a bunch of analogies. You know, we get our cars tuned up to prevent bigger issues down the road. We get 
annual checkups and go to the gym to maintain physical wellness and prevent injury and disease. We do chores, some of us do, and uh, you know, to make sure that we don't have a messy house and try and keep things neat and tidy. Because it depends on who you are, <laughs> maybe not me. But uh, yeah, we do a lot of these things. Going to therapy is like all of this stuff. It's routine maintenance for your mental and emotional wellness to prevent bigger issues down the road. Going to therapy doesn't mean something's wrong with you. It just means investing in yourself to keep your mind healthy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Why invest in everything else and not your mind? This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and MacCast listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash MacCast. That's B-E-T-T-E-R. H-E-L-P dot com slash MacCast, BetterHelp.com slash MacCast. And uh, big thanks to BetterHelp for their support of this show. I'd also like to thank my show sponsor, Hunter Douglas. You know, who doesn't love to live well, to be perfectly at ease in comfort and style? Hunter Douglas can help you do just that with their innovative window shade designs, gorgeous fabrics, and control systems so advanced that they can be scheduled to automatically adjust to their optimal position throughout the day. Perhaps it's the way the shades diffuse harsh sunlight to cast a beautiful glow across the room, or being able to enjoy the view outside the window while protecting your privacy inside. Or maybe it's the superior insulation that shades provide, keeping you warmer in winter, cooler in summer, and lowering your utility bills. Or it's simply that Goldilocks moment when you walk into a room and everything about it looks and feels just right. And when you tap into Hunter Douglas's PowerView technology, your shades can be set to automatically reposition for the perfect balance of light, privacy, and insulation morning, noon, and night. And what's great about Hunter Douglas's PowerView technology for us Apple fans is it's HomeKit compatible. That means you can easily integrate it into your home app, to your iOS device, Mac, and your HomePod, you can build full automations to control your Hunter Douglas window shades. And to me, that's simply just really, really cool. So live beautifully with Hunter Douglas, enjoying greater convenience, enhanced style, and increased comfort in your home throughout the day. Visit HunterDouglas.com slash MacCast today for your free Style Gets Smarter Design Guide with fresh takes, creative ideas, and smart solutions for dressing your windows. That's HunterDouglas.com slash MacCast for your free design guide. And a big thank you to Hunter Douglas for their support of the show. I want to kick things off today with a little follow-up from a listener about something we talked about a few episodes back. There was a home-sharing bug that someone in our community ran into where home sharing basically wasn't displaying videos in the computer app on the Apple TV. And we worked through a few tips, but I received this follow-up this week. Hi, Adam. It's Sonal here from the United Kingdom. I just wanted to let you and uh, fellow MacCast listeners know that the um, bug that you mentioned on the previous episode where 
um, networked uh, content uh, for uh, Apple TV was not showing up um, within the movie section, but um, local content from a iMac or a MacBook Pro was. Uh, I was afflicted by uh, this bug and it's been driving me potty as I've been trying to watch a lot of movies uh, in the last couple of weeks and had to airplay it from my um, silicon MacBook Pro. Uh, however, I'm pleased to say that with the latest uh, OSX update to 12.1 and also TV OS update to 15.2, um, this bug now seems to have been fixed and I can once again um, stream directly from my network attached storage um, to my Apple TV. I also want to uh, just add as well that uh, I was having a bug um, using any form of wireless or wired CarPlay between my iPhone 11 and also uh, my VW, my Volkswagen. Um, I've got the ID3, but I think, again, it was another bug that afflicted uh, any uh, models using um, VW's new car OS uh, software stack. Um, and that was introduced with an iOS 15.1, and I'm pleased to say that with now the update to 15.2, that bug seems to have been quashed, and my wireless car play works perfectly fine. Therefore, I'd encourage anyone having any of these bugs or maybe other problems um, to update to the latest software, as this hopefully should fix uh, quite a number of the problems. Thanks very much. Keep up the good work. Hey, thank you, Sonal. Yeah, and I think that's just generally good advice to, you know, stay on top of your software updates because Apple does patch things uh, hopefully relatively quickly. Some bugs, you know, stick around for a long, long time. But, you know, I think they generally do a pretty good job. And the other reminder, I guess, that I wanted to share with people is that if you are experiencing a bug or an issue, uh, don't be afraid to say something about it and specifically say something to Apple. You know, you can very easily go on their website to report a bug or an issue. And really, if you want a bug to get attention, that is the best way to do it, because the more people that go on and report it, the more likely that is to move that bug up the list. And Apple does look at their reports. You can also do reports, and we've talked about this on the past, for just features that you want to see added. And we have a feature actually later in the show that we're going to talk about that I think a lot of us probably should go tell Apple they need to they need to add. So we'll, I'll remind you when we get to that point. But basically, if you want to report a bug or a tip or an issue or just make a comment about anything, Apple has a feedback section on their site, apple.com slash feedback. It's a very simple form that you can fill out. Uh, and you can give your feedback directly to Apple, and that's probably the best way to do it. So, you know, here at the end of the year, I wanted to remind everybody about that. We haven't talked about it in a while, and it just fits in nicely with what you're talking about, Sonal, about staying on top of your software updates, but also, hey, let's make sure we're being good Apple citizens and people of the community and letting Apple know when, you know, we find a bug or maybe something bothers us or just there's a really cool feature that we think could be something that would enhance the user experience because chances are if it's something that you think is valuable, there's probably someone else in the community that's thinking exactly the same thing. So uh, apple.com slash feedback, check it out if you've, uh, if you've never done that before. So uh, we've been talking about Apple potentially doing an updated more consumer level display. I guess consumer is probably not the best way to put it because Apple's displays tend to be on the higher end side. And I was talking about this on the last episode of the MacCast, but I think maybe I'm thinking too high end or at least 
Some of you think so, because I received an email from Daniel that point, who pointed out that my pricing estimates for a rumored 24-inch you know, Apple display that would be based on the design of the 24-inch iMac might have been a bit off. I think I was speculating in that piece that it Apple might start in the range of around $1,500 for a display. And he reminded me, hey, Adam, that's a pretty expensive display, especially if you think about the fact that a 24-inch iMac, the entire computer, along with that 4.5K display, starts at $1,300 US. And you can even get an actual mid-range iMac for $1,500. So his point was like, why... Why would you pay $1,500 for a the 24-inch iMac display when you can get the whole iMac for about the same price? And that made me chuckle a little bit because, yeah, I don't think I was thinking too clearly when I was doing that because I guess my thinking was that $1,500 seemed reasonable considering the fact that Apple's current display, the Pro Display XDR, starts at 5 k So that seemed like a huge savings to me. But, you know, presumably the Apple display would match the the starting level display that we're hearing about would match the specs of the iMac, which is a 4.5K display. So not even a 5K display. And um, the LG Ultrafine 27 inch 5K display starts at $1,300. So yeah, it does make sense that Apple would probably have it priced a little bit more reasonably. Uh, if we remember back to when Apple did have displays like the Thunderbolt display and the the LCD cinema display or LED cinema display, uh, they started around a thousand dollars, I think nine hundred ninety nine dollars. So yeah, Daniel, as you point out, that's more likely to be maybe a price point that Apple starts at. It's possible that with a 24-inch model and it being a sub 5K resolution, the price point might even be lower. In the email, Daniel mentions he would hope that Apple could have a display starting around $500, which would be amazing. That feels to me like a price point that maybe is too low for Apple. We've never seen them do a display. I don't, well, I should never say never because you've got to go way, way back. But it's been a while since Apple did a sub $1,000 display that I'm aware of. So, you know, Uh, I think somewhere in that range could be where we start off. If we do get a display update, it could go even higher if it's a 27-inch version and it is mini-LED backlit, liquid retina display with ProMotion, 120 hertz variable refresh rates. That could be something more in that $1,500 range that I was thinking about. But yeah, if Apple can do some consumer-level displays uh, that are more affordable than their, you know, quote-unquote pro display, I think they're going to do very, very well with those. Um, It almost does, though, as I was thinking about this, it almost does make you think or wish that Apple would go back to supporting using an iMac as a display. They had, you know, a display mode on iMacs, I think back in 2011, where you could actually turn your iMac display, your iMac into a display. And I honestly knew some folks who would buy two iMacs and have one that they just used as a display because they were professionals and it provided not only a great display, but if one iMac died, they had literally another exact copy backup 27 inch iMac, which, you know, for the price 
was pretty a pretty good deal. So if Apple did bring back target display mode, Daniel, I think, yeah, my price would be totally out there because why wouldn't you just buy another <laughs> another iMac? That would make perfect sense. So, yeah, again, maybe that's something we should give Apple feedback on. Bring back target display mode on iMacs, especially just for environmental reasons. You know, as people replace iMacs, and we've brought it up on the show many, many times that people ask for this all the time. Why not let us reuse our older iMacs as displays rather than, you know, confining them to the recycle bin? I honestly don't know why Apple took that feature away. Maybe there's some technical limitations that I'm just not aware of. If you happen to know, uh, let me know, mattcast at gmail.com. But yeah, thank you, Daniel, for pointing out my little display pricing discrepancy. I appreciate it. And now earlier we were talking about staying on top of the latest operating system updates. But, you know, sometimes even the latest update doesn't necessarily bring the features that you're looking for. And that happened for Richard this week, who emailed me to say, hey, I updated, you know, to iPad OS 15.2. And I noticed something in the notes app that still bothers me. There's a feature there that Apple just simply hasn't added and it doesn't make any sense. And that is the ability to color the text in a note. There are a bunch of options, and I had to go check this for myself because I couldn't believe it, but there are definitely options for changing the font face, doing basic styling like bold and underline, strikethroughs, and all that sort of stuff, but he's absolutely right. No ability to color the text in the Notes app on iOS. Now, interestingly, and some of you might be going, wait, I thought you could do that in Notes. Well, you can, uh, and it's only on the Mac version. So in the Mac version of the app, you absolutely can change the color of the text in notes. And I think this is thanks to the fact that Mac OS has basic font functionality built into the operating system. Specifically, it has access to the color palette. I'd have to go ask some developer friends about, you know, options and stuff like that or what the differences are. But, you know, on the Mac, if you select the text in the note, and go under the format menu, go to font, you can choose show colors, and that will load up your standard operating system color picker, and you can choose the color you want. You can even save out colors to a palette and have those for accessing quickly, and you can change the color in the Notes app on the Mac. Now, what's even more interesting about this, and I would imagine frustrating, uh, I think Richard actually brought this up in his email, is the fact that if you sync your notes via iCloud, the color will actually sync from the Mac to the iOS or iPadOS version of notes. So you can get color in there, but you have to put the color in on the desktop on your Mac. You can't do it when you're out and about, you know, trying to use a note on your iPad or your iPhone. So definitely the limit is not within the app or the app's ability to show text in a color. It's just the fact that Apple on iOS doesn't give you a way to apply colors to the text of a note on iOS or iPad OS. Um, but that got me thinking because the fact that you can do this, you can use colors on the Mac, provides a potential workaround that, Richard, this might work for you to get colors in notes on iOS. And the thing that I thought of is, you could just create a note on the Mac with the colors you want. So maybe type the names of the colors and then select them 
and apply those colors to that text. So you would have, you know, red, blue, green, purple, whatever colors you want, and then just make the red text red and the word blue, blue, and the word green, green, and just create a note called colors or something like that. And then sync that through iCloud to iOS or iPadOS. And then from there, if you want to apply color to a text, what you could do is jump over to that colors note. You can select and copy the color that you want, the text with the color applied to it, then paste it into the note where you want to use it, and then just edit that text, and that text will stay that color. I actually tried this uh, on my iPad, and it worked just fine. Now, granted, it is uh, inefficient. <laughs> it's a very hacky workaround, but it's a workaround nonetheless. So it's a way to do it with the current Notes app. I'm sure many others will point out that there are also a ton of really great third-party Notes apps that sync between Mac and iOS. So you could just find an alternative app that allows you to, to, to do colored text. But I get it that a lot of people like to use the built-in stuff. It's already there. It's just convenient. It doesn't cost anything more. There's no subscriptions to deal with. It's just built in. It's integrated in a lot of ways. And so it's super, super handy. But, you know, why Apple doesn't have this uh, feature in iOS is baffling. But another great example, as I pointed out earlier, of a time to maybe for a lot of us to go give feedback to Apple at apple.com slash feedback and say, hey, give us colored text in iOS and iPadOS. It's on the Mac. Why isn't it there? This is really weird, Apple. It just feels really inconsistent and uh, and odd, right? I, I would definitely agree with that. And I think Richard pointed that out in his email. So thank you for your, for your email, Richard. Hopefully this little workaround is something that can work for you for now. But hopefully, again, Apple will change this and update this maybe in iPadOS 15.3. We could hope, right? <laughs> All right, I have one more thing for you in the show today, and that is a thing of the moment. Speaking of colors, my pick is actually a color picker and palette for the Mac. It's called SIP, S-I-P, and I don't know if that stands for anything. SIPapp.io is the link. I'll have a link to it in the show notes at maccast.com. But this handy little utility actually gives you a little menu bar item that allows you to go in and create color palettes and select and save colors into those palettes so you can use them in your Mac apps. So it's great for designers. It's great for developers like myself who, you know, are building palettes for different websites and stuff like that. It integrates with your apps like Photoshop and Illustrator, Xcode, Sublime Text, you know, all your favorite text editors. It has support for a bunch of the various color formats, including hex and RGB, HSB, all of them. Uh, the palettes have this great little dock that is a tiny palette that can sit on the side of your display and you can have all of them there for quick access. You can control where it shows up on your screen, but it's really minute and kind of out of the way. And so when you're switching between different apps, uh, you can go in and you can pick colors, you can add colors using the, you know, the color wheels, color picker. I often am just sampling colors from palettes that I find. And it's really great. I create palettes for all my clients when I'm working on a website. It has keyboard shortcuts that allow you to quickly access and add those colors, use those colors, update them. You can create your own custom names, 
all that sort of stuff. It even has a built-in contrast checker. So if you're a web developer like me, you can make sure, or an app developer as well, you can make sure that your colors meet accessibility standards, that they're high enough contrast off of each other uh, that you make them accessible and ensure your websites and your apps are accessible to everybody. So it's super, super handy. Great little utility and app if you work with color in any way. Uh, it's just 10 bucks with one year of updates, so $10 US for the price, so not very expensive. And I actually have mine through SetApp uh, because I have a SetApp subscription, and so that's another great way to get it too. So if you already have SetApp, you already have access to it, SIP. If not, uh, check out SIPapp.io, and uh, that is my thing of the moment for this week. But with that, that is going to do it for this episode of the MacCast. Before I leave you, I would like to thank my show sponsor, Smile, makers of Text Expander. You can get more information and details on Text Expander by visiting textexpander.com slash podcast. Bandwidth for the MacCast is provided by Cashfly. You can find them at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. And all advertising on the MacCast is handled by Backbeat Media. They are at BackbeatMedia.com. As always, I love hearing from you. If you have a comment, a question, something you'd like to hear covered on a future episode of the MacCast, you can send your emails and audio comments to MacCast at gmail.com. You're also welcome to call in on the listener hotline. That phone number is 281-622-4269, 281-MAC-IAM9, and you can leave a voicemail there. And if you need show notes, links to anything that I talked about on this or any other episode of the MacCast, you'll find those on the website. That's at MacCast.com. And I'll just mention, if you're a Patreon supporter, something we started doing is we are emailing you those show notes. So uh, you don't even have to visit the website to find those. They should show up in your inbox shortly after the show airs. So be looking out for those. And that's just another great reminder. If you'd like to support the show directly, you can become a Patreon at patreon.com slash MacCast. And a uh, big shout out to all of my Patreon supporters. We really appreciate the support. And then finally, if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me on Twitter, twitter.com slash MacCast. You can check out the MacCast Facebook page over at facebook.com slash the MacCast or find me on Instagram, just MacCast on Instagram. But that is going to do it for now. Until next time, I will talk to you all again real soon.